Acts chapter 3 from verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he'd decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man, whom you see and know, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring all peoples of earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And we pray that in the next few minutes, as we spend some time looking back at what John just read to us, uh, a passage where a miracle took place, and then Peter explained it. It's something that's far removed from our lives today, and yet to, uh, this morning I ask that you would help us see the relevance of it, the power of it for our lives, so that we would know you better and trust you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you please take a seat? 
And uh, a very good morning to you. It's lovely to have you with us at St. Stephen's. I didn't think anyone would be here this morning. I thought half the people would be on the phone trying to form a government with Winston Peters. Uh, and the other half would probably have got daylight savings wrong like I, I normally do. And then we've had a number of distractions this morning, which you won't know because Neil's a professional. But uh, Neil didn't know he was leading the service until only a couple of hours ago. Wateri's very, Wateri Minor, she was supposed to be leading our service and is uh, very unwell, so please pray for her. And then I was going to, it's taken me 11 years at St Stephen's to build up the courage to do this, but I was for the first time this morning going to embarrass my wife publicly in a service. Those of you that know my wife know why I've never done that before. Uh, I've a healthy... I have a healthy love for my safety. Uh, but it's Jamie's birthday today and I was going to announce it and kind of point her out and I thought, but Laura's been throwing up since three o'clock this morning as well. So there's distractions everywhere, but we're going to focus our hearts and minds on the passage that John just read. And today we're looking at a passage that, combined with others in the book of Acts, can be the cause of a lot of controversy in Christian circles. The book of Acts, as we've seen and are going to see as we keep going through it, has a lot of spirit-filled miracles. We're going to see many wondrous things as we continue on in this series. We will see supernatural healings. We will see spectacular conversions. We will see the dead being raised. We will see miracles aplenty. And Christians, Bible-believing Christians, have different takes on how we should read this part of God's word and understand its significance for us today. Now, I'm not talking about arguments over whether the miracles took place. That's the kind of sceptic issue with it. That's the non-Christian problem with, it, with all the miracles and acts. How do you believe that uh, that, that happened? Uh, that's not the problem I'm talking about this morning. In fact, I've got to say, I've, I've never really understood that position. I can understand you having a, a difficulty with the thought of God, but if you believe in a God who's powerful and who creates and who's other, then I don't know why the, the idea of God doing miraculous things is difficult. That would seem normal to me. That would be You'd expect him to be able to do that. That's not the controversy I'm talking to. The controversy I'm referring to is one between more what we would call charismatic and or Pentecostal Christians who would see passages like ours today as exactly the kind of reason we should be more focused on the power of the Spirit and more uh, focused on expecting and performing miracles today in the name of Jesus like we see happen in the, in the reading that John brought to us. And they would have a feeling and a concern that today we've lost confidence as Christians. We don't use the power of the name of Jesus or the power of the Spirit in the same way. Uh, Why don't we have the expectation to see God at work in these different ways? There's a concern that we might be quenching the Spirit or not grasping or tapping into the power of the Gospel or the power of the Spirit. So that's one side of uh, kind of looking at at these issues. On the other hand, there's a belief in what some call the cessationist position. Cessation meaning ceasing. And this position is that this period of the early church in the book of Acts that we read about was a unique time. And God was operating differently here because the apostles, as they went round witnessing to Jesus and talking about what Jesus had uh, had done, they needed to be trusted. They needed to be authenticated and it was as they did the miracles that people could see that what they were saying was true and it authenticated their message. So the question, well, why, don't we, why does that make any difference today? Well, today when people share the good news of Jesus, when I do it this morning, when you do it with your friends, we don't need to be authenticated anymore by miracles. We're authenticated how? 
as it lines up with the apostles' teaching. People have got the Bible there, they can see what the apostles have taught and you're authenticated in terms of your faithfulness to the apostles' teaching. You can check it, but back then there's no New Testament. You can't check what the apostles are saying with anyone else and so it needs this authentication. And so for people on this side, the signs and wonders that we see so common in the book of Acts ceased with the apostles. And they would say that today the faith healing meetings that... uh, Uh, some of us may have been at or we've seen represented on TV or movies, uh, are suggestion and fakery and it brings the gospel into disrepute and it gives Christians who are desperate for healing false hope and false expectation. And so there's controversy in how you see what's going on in the book of Acts. Well, today we're not going to answer that. (laughs) We're not going to answer it in part because of time. We're We're not going to answer it in part because we're going to be seeing a lot of this go as we go through the book of Acts. So why talk about it all now? We are going to be talking about it as we go through, but I do want you to have those two positions in mind as we look at today's passage. Because I would see myself probably in the middle of those two positions, and I think this passage and a lot of the passages in the book of Acts uh, should be challenge both those two positions. And I'll point it, point it out because I think it's important why it is as we go through. Now remember, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we're in, still in the early stages of the book of Acts. So in terms of salvation history, Jesus has died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, and he's ascended to be back with the Father. So Jesus is now gone. But Jesus has now sent his Spirit And so now the spirit-filled apostles are going to go out to the world to tell them about Jesus. And as I've said a number of times in this series, and I'll go on saying it, spoiler alert, they're going to be very successful in this mission. These spirit-filled disciples are going to change the world so that it's now the world that you and I live in. No one in the world back then knew of who Jesus is. Today, the whole world knows who Jesus is. Our dating system, the name of Jesus Christ, the rhythm of life of Christmas and Easter, everyone knows who Jesus is because their mission was so successful. Jesus, the, world, the message of Jesus changed the world. And today we're going to see two things. One, the first miracle of these spirit-filled apostles. We're going to see them heal a man born crippled. Then secondly, we're going to see Peter preach about it. And that's going to be very important because what Peter does is he'll tell us the significance of it. Because we can read a miracle like that and kind of come up with our own ideas about why it's important and what's it teaching. Peter will tell us. He'll tell us why it's important. So we're going to have two kind of headings. Uh, we're going to look at the miracle itself and then the uh, Peter's sermon on it. And then under the second one there's a few subheadings. But the first point is the lame shall leap, verses 1 to 10. Here's the miracle. The lame shall leap. We see Peter and John going up to the temple at 3 in the afternoon. In other words, they're carrying on with their normal lives. I love seeing Peter and John together. Uh, I reckon they're one of the best tag teams in the Bible, which people don't really think about, but they are. Uh, We know from Luke's Gospel that they ran a fishing business before they fell in with Jesus. So they are long-term partners and colleagues. And you see them at crucial times in the Gospels uh, together. I think they were amigos. I think they were best buddies. They were the first to the tomb when Jesus was resurrected. They were on the beach together uh, after Jesus rose when Jesus reinstated Peter. His buddy John was there and uh, was, you know, after Peter would have been feeling so bad. And they're here together now. And there's something, I I point this out because I, I do believe there's something powerful about Christian partnerships. 
And I'm not just talking about friendship or fellowship, as important as those things are. I'm talking about ministering together. Uh, If you've got one, then you'll know the blessing of it. If you've had someone pray alongside you or serve alongside you or go out witnessing together, you'll know the kind of bond it makes. And if you don't know that, then look for it. Uh, Provide it for someone else. It's a, a huge blessing. Anyway, Peter and John are walking into the temple and we're caught. There's a couple of names in this uh, reading which are always going to be important. We're told the gate they're going to is beautiful. And I think that is significant because we're going to have something beautiful put alongside something ugly. Because we're told that at this beautiful gate there is a beggar. And if you've lived in cities or areas with a high number of beggars, you'll know the ugliness of that. Because what it means, without making a decision on whether uh, someone's begging through poor choices themselves or the failure of society or whatever else, whatever else is behind it, what it means is that someone is in such need, someone cannot cope with life in such a way, there is a desperation and an urgency that means uh, there is a, a, a need, and that is ugly. And so we're seeing beautiful and ugliness side by side. Verse 3 tells us that as Peter and John were about to go in, the crippled man asks them for money. And I've got to say, I love Peter from the Gospels, but I love Peter here. We're told in verse 4 that he and John look straight at the man. Now there's going to be two things necessary for this healing to take place. One is the power of God, but the other is the love and care of the apostles. And I don't want us to miss it. To look straight at the man as he asks for money was to become involved. Earlier this year I was in London for a week and uh, I walked past a disturbing amount of homeless people in that city, a number of whom called out for money from me. And I can tell you to my shame, I didn't make eye contact with all of them because a lack of eye contact allowed me to keep walking and to keep a distance. To make that contact from Peter and John was to get involved to get into the messiness and the hurt and the brokenness of people. And it's much easier to actually remain distant. It's actually easier to remain uninvolved. Peter didn't. Uh, But you see it too when the man is healed. In verse 5, the man looks expectantly at Peter and John, hoping to get something, and Peter says, sorry, I haven't got any money, but I'll give you something better. And you can imagine the guy going, yeah, right, this is going to be good. You're going to give me something better than money. But then Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Walk, And what's the next thing that happens? Peter grabs his hand and pulls him up. That's beautiful. A guy called Thomas Walker wrote a a commentary on Acts and he says an incredible thing here. He says, although the power of this miracle was Christ's, the hand was Peter's. Something very powerful there, isn't it? Peter made eye contact and then grasped him by the hand. He loved him. I worry sometimes that as evangelical Christians, we're better at knowing truth and arguing against false teaching than we are at getting into the mess and loving people to show the love and power of God. I'm about to mention that it's the power of Jesus that uh, kind of helps this happen, but it's also true this doesn't happen without Peter and John's love and care, their involvement. This has really hit me this week. Uh, I feel like it's an area I I personally need to buck up in and I'll, I'll leave it to you to work out whether you do. So it it requires their kind of love and involvement. It also, of course, requires the power of God. This is an incredible miracle. 
And I think we know that Luke is a doctor, and you get a hint of that here because there's a few more details given than the normal run-of-the-mill random miracles of the other Gospels. This uh, 1 and 2 tells us that this is a congenital defect. He's never walked from birth. These muscles and bones and joints have never worked. Verse 7 tells us the man's feet and ankles become strong. In chapter 4, we'll see this next week, it tells us the man was over 40. But such is the power of Jesus' name, such is the uh, nature of his power, this man jumps up, verse 8, and begins to walk, and then you get the impression walking's not enough. So he's got to jump, and he's got to leap, and he leaps into the temple. And This is a man my age. I'm just over 40. Just over, don't laugh, just over 40. I find it hard to jump up and leap now and I haven't not been able to walk for my whole life. This man, there he is doing it. And now beauty is at the beautiful gate because that's what God does. He restores and he mends and he makes beautiful. In the name of Jesus has come healing. Brokenness has been restored In Isaiah 35, there's a prophecy about a time when God would work among his people and one of the signs of that, the evidences of that, was the lame leaping, here it is literally. And I want us to know this morning with confidence that the same God who worked back then is still the same God at work today. We have a God who is powerful in that way. We have a God who does the supernatural and the miraculous. God heals the sick. He repairs the broken. He strengthens the will and he mends broken hearts. He can do that for you. He can do it for me. He can do it for the people that we know and love and care about. The same God is at work changing the direction of people's lives today, bringing people out of darkness into light, giving people with no hope a future. God is in the business of the miraculous and he's still at work doing it. And like Peter and John, we can partner with the Lord as he does his business. We won't if we don't make eye contact. We won't if we don't grasp the hand. But if we do, watch out. The Lord will do wonderful things. So firstly, the lame will leap. We've got a powerful God and I pray that we will rejoice in that this morning. Second thing, second thing. The key is Jesus. Verse 11 to 26. I want this to. Um, I want you to think about what I'm saying here. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, I wonder if you've seen a pattern from today's chapter and the chapter that we've looked at over the last two weeks. Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. What happened? Well, firstly, a miracle happened. The Spirit came down from heaven. Then that was followed by a sermon from Peter. More than that, what happened in sermons Peter? What happened in Peter's sermon? What happened in Peter's sermon? Well, Peter said that the the Jesus that you people put to death, God has glorified and you need to repent. What do we see here today? Exactly the same thing. Firstly, a miracle. This crippled man is healed, followed by a sermon of Peter where Peter says basically to these people, you disowned Jesus. He says you disowned Jesus twice, but God glorified him Now you should repent. But notice again, why am I saying this? The focus is totally on Jesus with Peter. That is surprising. It's bizarre. After the coming of the Spirit, Peter preached about Jesus. After the healing of this man, Peter preaches about Jesus. It's always about Jesus, just about Jesus. Unlike some of the healing meetings today, the focus was not on the healed person. 
They weren't paraded around. The, the focus wasn't on the human healer. In fact, Peter says in verse 12, why do you stare at us as if we had the power to do it? No, Peter says the significance of the healing is not the healing itself, it's what it points to, and that is Jesus. That's what he wants people to see from this healing, Jesus Christ. This is very important for us to get. Otherwise, we'll misunderstand what's going on here and what's going on as God performs miracles. Now, we've got to rush through this part because it's a packed sermon of Peter's, but it's so important. Peter is speaking to Jews that knew the Old Testament and he's saying to those Jews, the whole Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus. The whole person, that, the whole fulfilment that the Old Testament has been waiting for is fulfilled in Jesus. Just by the way, there's a very important implication there for us today. You will never fully understand Jesus unless you know the Old Testament. Because if Jesus is the answer, you've got to know the question. And a lot of people misunderstanding who Jesus is and what he's done is because they don't know the Old Testament, just kind of read the Gospels. The Old Testament's very important. The fact that this happens at Solomon's colonnade, very important. That was the one part of the second temple that was, that was from the old temple. And so Peter says, as we stand under this part of the old with the new, let me tell you how the old points to Jesus. And in this sermon, he basically tells them three things. Uh, who Jesus is, what he's done, and how they should respond to him. I just want to briefly mention each of those. Number one, who Jesus is. When you go through this sermon, Peter uses names and titles and descriptions about Jesus that would have been mind-blowing to the Old Testament Jews in front of him. Have a look at them. Verse 13. Peter starts off by saying, The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. That doesn't sound that impressive, but he is called something here, God's servant. But at the end of verse 18, Alex, can we just see the end of verse 18, then we'll go back to 13 at the moment, we see that this servant of God suffers. And suddenly for the Old Testament Jew, this takes on a whole new dimension. Because Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about the great suffering servant who through his suffering will save God's people. Jesus is being described as that in verse 13. But that's not all, there's more. Verse 14, Peter calls Jesus the Holy and Righteous One. We think of Jesus today as great. We skim right over that. This is the language of God in the Old Testament, the Holy and Righteous One. In verse 15, he calls Jesus the author of life. This is either blasphemy or Peter thinks Jesus is God. In verse 18, he describes him as the Christ. That's the, uh, the promised anointed king. In verse 22 and the verses afterwards, he speaks about a promise made way back in the book of Deuteronomy that there would one day be another prophet like Moses. Moses was seen as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but there was a prophecy that one day there would be a prophet like Moses. He says Jesus is that prophet. Then in verse 24, he says another thing that's easy to miss. He says, all the prophets since Samuel have spoken of these days. What he's getting at there, as soon as you hear of the prophet Samuel, you think of the promise of God that there would be a king like David. And so he's saying, here's the king like David, only greater. Then in verses 25 to 26, he goes back to the very first promise of them all, the promise God made to the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham, where God promised that all the peoples of the world would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And, and, and Peter says, guess what? Jesus is that blessing. This is unbelievable, what he says about who Jesus is here. There is um, a, a possibility of getting a... 
in certain areas of life, could be a political rally or a concert or where you get a hype man up to build the crowd about who's about to come onto the stage and you give them their resume and their, their uh, CV and you list all the things that are incredible about them and you get louder and louder and louder so that as they walk on, it's fever pitch. That's what Peter says about Jesus here. But look what he says about him. Jesus, this Jesus, is God's suffering servant. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. He's the Christ. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the king like David. He's the seed of Abraham who blesses the world. This hype man is the best one of all time and there's no hyperbole. There's no exaggeration. He's actually minimising who Jesus is. That's what Peter says in this sermon. Secondly, though, he doesn't just say who Jesus is, he says what Jesus did. And again, we've got to rush it, and I'm sorry, but he says incredible things about what Jesus has done. Verses 19 to 21 are the key. He says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago. Peter says that Jesus has done or will do a few things there. The wiping of sin, bringing times of refreshment to all Christians and restoring all things. We could spend a whole sermon on each of those because they are so incredible and mean so much to each of God's people. He brings the forgiveness of sin. Guilt is up there with one of the most destructive things in the whole world. Because there are times in our lives where we know we've failed, we know we've let down, we know we've wronged, and we know that we've got an inability to do anything about it. And Peter says, Jesus has wiped it away. It's like you could come up here today behind me, we could put up a big whiteboard on there, and you could write down everything you've ever felt guilty about, and then we could wipe it away, and like that whiteboard, it would be totally clean. That's what Jesus does. In fact, better than a whiteboard. I'm yet to meet the whiteboard that doesn't leave some kind of trace, right? Or am I the only one who has problems with whiteboard? With Jesus, wiped totally, gone. No guilt. Total forgiveness. That's what Jesus has done. And the relief and rest that comes with that. But he says more than that. He says, through Jesus comes times of refreshment promised to us. We need that in this life. It's not a total life of refreshment because life in this fallen world is not like that. But you won't find this kind of refreshment anywhere else other than Jesus in this world. Because when you know Jesus, you know that ultimately everything's sorted out. You know ultimately the future is secured. You've got all those blessings and you will get times of refreshment in your life in Jesus. But even more than that, it says there will also be a time when everything's restored. One day, the new creation will come and that will be exactly what God intended it to be without this fallen world that you and I suffer in today. With sickness, gone. With death, gone. With loneliness and hurt and betrayal, gone. Everything restored. Peter says this is what Jesus has done. Forgiveness of sins, times of refreshment, everything being restored. So Peter says who Jesus is. He says what he's done. He then says to these people, now this is what you need to do in the light of that. And he says, you should repent. Same as he did at Pentecost. In fact, when you read through the Gospels, it's the same Gospel message that's always preached. The message of John the Baptist was, repent. The first sermon of Jesus was, repent and believe the good news. The first sermon of Peter after the Spirit came, repent. The second sermon, repent. In other words, we don't want to get this wrong. 
This is the response we need to do. And repent just means change the way you treat Jesus. Remember Peter said to those crowds on the first day, you killed him, you got him wrong, now change. Now repent with your life. In this one he says, you you got Jesus wrong, you disowned him twice, and remember, just before you think, well, arrogant Peter's up there telling others what he should do, Peter knew more about disowning Jesus than anyone. Three times he disowned Jesus. But he says, you did disown him, but now, when you know who he is and what he's done, repent, which just means change your life. You used to live your way, now live his way. It means stop getting Jesus wrong, get him right, and live for him. Live under his lordship. Instead of you just making your own decisions, you look for what he wants from your life. If you're here this morning, you've never really taken that step, that's the step you need to take. Repentance is key. First sermon in all these stages. Perhaps you've never really wanted to fully commit to Jesus. You need to. You need to repent. Perhaps you've known, kind of deep down, if you do, it's going to change the rest of your life. It will. But look at the benefits of that. Forgiveness of sin, times of refreshment, everything being restored. You need to repent. Because then your sin is wiped away. Then you can have refreshment in this awful life. And you can look forward to a future when everything's restored. But we need to repent. But I think there's a hidden uh, kind of response Peter wants here too. It's repent and relax. Because you've got Jesus. (laughs) He's just given you Jesus' CV in terms of identity and what he's done. So repent, then relax, because you're in the hands of Jesus. This is what Peter preaches in the sermon explaining the miracle of the crippled man who can now walk. He says who Jesus is, says what Jesus has done, and how we should respond with repentance and relaxing. And so as I wrap up, Do you see how Peter doesn't want us to focus on the miracle? He doesn't want the attention on someone being able to leap who couldn't leap before. He doesn't want the attention on himself that kind of did the healing or or, or the emphasis on the power of the Spirit. He wants the emphasis on Jesus. And this is why this is important to know and it's not just a kind of philosophical debate or argument. Why is this important for us to know? Because God has a far greater plan for you than just your physical well-being. Jesus has got a far greater purpose for you than just having good ankles or just having good health. And when we put all the emphasis on the miracles and the physical healing, we fail to see the glory of God and his plans and purposes. The miracle was pointing to the full truth, the full benefit and glory that you and I have in Jesus Christ. If we could speak to the crippled man here today, I'm sure he would be thankful that he could walk after the age of 40 and that he could leap as he went into the temple. But I am absolutely sure that the future of eternity is far more precious for him. The healings are a small taste of the new creation to come when everything will be restored. But it's just the appetizer. Don't get taken up with the appetizer. That's why at the, um, the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus stops healing people to go and preach. And you can read that verse and not really think about the surprise of it, but it's surprising. Why would you stop healing people physically to preach? Because preaching will lead to the greater plans and purposes of God. 
It's why when in John 6, they try and fought, the Jews tried to force Jesus to be king because he'd done the miracle of the 5,000, he wouldn't allow them to be king because he was doing something far more important than just miracles. The miracles were just signs pointing to it. There's a bigger picture, a greater truth, a fuller purpose. And we don't want to be like little children on Christmas Day who play with the box and don't realise the presence inside. Friends, God continues today to do miracles. He's a God of power and he's a God who's active in this world. But not everyone's healed. Not everyone will walk. But everyone who repents, everyone who knows who Jesus is and what Jesus has done has their sins wiped away, has times of refreshing in this fallen world and has a perfect future assured for them because everything will be restored by Jesus Christ. And so when we get to a passage like this in Acts, this is where I started, our main point shouldn't be cessationism. The main point of this chapter, I point this out because I once sat in a church which was preaching on Acts and the main point of every passage was you shouldn't expect this today. That's not the main point of this passage, right? The main point of this passage is God did an incredible thing and it points to Jesus. We should rejoice in that and rejoice when we see and experience God doing the miraculous today. Miracles then and now are fantastic. We should be thankful when we see them and experience them. But there's far more to them. They are a taste. They are a sign pointing to who Jesus is, what he's done and how we should respond. So don't worry if your ankles, like mine, are not great. That's a bit facetious, but I'm saying this morning, don't even worry if your health is failing and you haven't received a healing because God has a greater plan and purpose for you. He's done and will do way more for you than just heal this physical body. He's given you a new heart. He's secured to you an eternal future. He's wiped your slate clean. He's given you something eternally more important and valuable. So repent and relax, because Jesus has got you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of these words. We thank you for what you did in the life of this crippled man so many years ago, but even more than that, we thank you for who Jesus is and what he's done. And I pray that we might repent and relax. In his mighty name, amen.